Hey, Fresh Capital listeners. In this episode, we're looking at one of Australia's success stories, Atlassian. Atlassian's mission is to unleash the potential of every team, and they do this through their software tools that help people within businesses collaborate and deliver projects. But the most innovative thing about Atlassian isn't software. It's their approach to selling their software. We explain it all in this week's episode. As always, rate and follow. It really helps us out. Keep listening and enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week, we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn about companies and investing. My name is Dan. Joining me, as always, good friend Albert. How are you doing? Dan, I am good. How are you going? Doing very well. Doing very well. It's not too hot a day in Sydney today. The last couple of weeks have had some scorches. Are you staying inside this weekend, Albert, or heading out? No, it's, it's a beautiful day. I just got back from the gym, which has been good. Um, it rained a bit this morning, but like overall, hopefully this weekend pans out. I'm playing a bit of tennis tonight, which will be fun. Yeah, I, I didn't realize until we had dinner the other week that you like to play tennis at 10 p.m. Like on a Sunday. 10, 10 p.m. You got to Then you go to bed straight away and, you know, you're feeling refreshed because you've had a bit of exercise. Well... I guess you'll be feeling refreshed and ready for work on Monday where you may or may not be using uh, Atlassian's collaboration tools. That was a bit of a forced segue. No, I liked it. I liked it. (laughs) Atlassian. uh, Were you in on these guys uh, at IPO or how long have you been tracking Atlassian? No, I'm actually, I didn't uh, jump in at IPO, which is a shame because they've obviously skyrocketed since then but you know i kind of been closely following the story but not not investing and i'm not actually an investor in atlassian at the moment well so for the listeners many of whom are australian atlassian bit of a a homegrown hero uh, for us atlassian produces software that helps teams work together more efficiently and effectively by providing you know project planning management software collaboration tools those sorts of things. They've got four main segments, subscriptions, as you can imagine for a software business, maintenance, where they maintain their software for a fee, perpetual licenses, and other, which is training, strategic consulting, that sort of thing. They're actually a a bit of an old business. I didn't realize, Albert, but they've been around since 2002. Um, One of those classic, you know, overnight success stories, even though they've been plugging along for a long, long time before everyone knew about them. Headquartered in Sydney, Australia. Anything off the top, Albert, that you want to say about Atlassian? Yeah, so it was a good overview. They, they kind of split their products into three kind of big buckets. The first is what they call Agile and DevOps. I'm sure a lot of people think about Agile and, and presumably run Agile within the business, but Agile really is a software mentality and in a way you ship and build software and Atlassian were really the pioneers of agile as a philosophy. Uh, They've got the second bucket which is ITSM and uh, IT ops which is really around IT service management. You know if you work at a big company and you log like a a ticket saying hey my internet's not working or this program in my computer's not working they'll often have an ITSM piece of software that sits behind that ticketing system Sometimes it's um, an Atlassian product. Sometimes it's one of their competitors like Zendesk or ServiceNow. Uh, and then they've got uh, a smaller bucket called work management, which is just around 
general work and project management. And then within each of those buckets, they've obviously got their flagship products, Jira, Jira Service Management, Trello, Confluence, and Bitbucket. So we'll do a bit of a deep dive into those products uh, in a little bit, but just a little bit more on the company. 236,000 customers, which doesn't necessarily sound like a lot, but keeping in mind that some of those customers are obviously uh, companies, businesses of their own with many, many employees underneath them. Two-thirds of the Fortune 500 use Atlassian's products in, in some way or another. And really, I think if you're wanting to uh, generalize or, or have a sort of an overarching theme for Atlassian, it's really nicely summarized in their mission, which is to unleash the potential of every team. So basically their products help teams organize, discuss, and complete work through software. Um, so that as the overview, Albert, and I know you've used some of Atlassian's products. Do you want to dive into, let's hit the main three, Jira, Confluence, and Trello, and just describe them for the listeners? Yeah, I, I like their mission a lot because it plays into their ticker. The ticker is actually team. Um, so it's pretty funny if you type in Atlassian ticker when it shows the little NASDAQ stock growth. It's a uh, team. Very, um, very cool. Um, yeah, so Atlassian got kind of a couple of flagship products, but their first product they launched is a product called Jira. And Jira is really targeted at uh, developers. It's a product that enables developers to track their uh, development workflow to understand or what's really being used or built right now, what, what needs to be reviewed, what's about to be shipped, and then what are the things that we need to work on. So really at its core, it's a Kanban board um, that you you know then assign different tasks to that Kanban board and then assign different things. So if you're running an agile business, you'll use Jira as your main source of truth in terms of what people are working on. So you can see you know this developer you know, Sally is working on this product. Um, this developer, Greg, has now um, built this product and it's ready for code review. Uh, or this um, developer, Tom, has now built a, um, a piece of product and it is ready to be deployed when it needs to be. So it's a product that lets you see who's working on what, what else needs to be worked on, and what's ready for a delivery. And then within Jira, there's a lot of other things um, as people start to use it for non-development work, uh, like at roadmaps and, and long-term planning. But really at its core, it's a product that helps developers understand who's working on what, what needs to be worked on, and what's ready to be shipped. Does that give you a pretty good overview, Dan, of what Jira is? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think for non-developers out there, you might have come across a Gantt chart before, which is sort of like a bit of a tool which is like on a x and y axis on the x axis you've just got these lines showing that you know albert might be working on something for three months dan will be working on something for two months jess something for five months and just sort of overlapping where that workflow maybe interacts and where there might be resourcing issues where you're all working on something at the same time and something else needs to be done jurek is really just a project management tool if there's a task that the whole team needs to do and that task is broken up into smaller subtasks it becomes really difficult to start tracking that without the use of some of these tools and that's where jira comes in albert do you want to quickly go over confluence and trello as well yeah it's funny explaining these because i'm literally in them every single day like jira is the first piece of software 
I use every single day working in a software business where like you load up your computer, daily stand up, which is, you know, a sprint ceremony is part of running an agile business. You know, you move your Jira cards around to say, this is what I'm working on. So it's funny talking about them. Um, Confluence, which I also spend a lot of time in. Uh, it's kind of like a word processor in the cloud. You know, I'm, I'm sure they'll, um, you know, Atlassian people will probably berate me for saying it's like a word processor in the cloud. Um, but ultimately, it's a, a knowledge repository where people can build, write, store um, word documents or, or word process looking documents, sorry, because um, they're not word documents, they're knowledge documents. Um, so it's like a knowledge repository. You could probably liken it to a, a really easy to use Wikipedia article. A lot of companies use these for internal wikis, um, writing up and, and storing documentation around products they're building, writing up specific requirements. Um, you know, the company I work at, we really use it as like a knowledge repository. So not just writing requirements about software, but interviews we do with customers will put up there, um, documentation around the product, documentation around process, um, scoping projects out. It's really just uh, word processing in the cloud. Excellent. And then Trello, I think is probably the, the easiest one to sort of summarize, as you mentioned, sort of that Kanban style. It's it's like the digital version of sticky notes, isn't it, Albert? You know, different team members or different tasks will have different color sticky notes. And then there's sort of a board where you can essentially place them all to see who's working on what, when do things need to be due in a very transparent way so that if Albert and Dan are working on a, a group task together, I can always see Albert's progress and what he's working on because I can see it on the board and he's updating it in real time. Um, and that's, I think, probably the, the easiest one to access because it's very, very intuitive. I know lots of uni students use it just so that they can understand you know, their different um, classes, what they have to do for each one, track their timelines, and it's, it's pretty free and accessible to use. So that's sort of like the entryway to the Atlassian product suite, which is a good place to start off, Albert. What is Atlassian's strategy around these products and how have they been so successful in just getting people onto them? Yeah, so Atlassian really pioneered what they call product-led growth. And at the time, no one called it product-led growth. Everyone was actually super skeptical of what Atlassian were doing, but now they've basically wrote the playbook on what it means to grow. And uh, what product-led growth means uh, really is captured in the ethos of what Atlassian do, which is they believe products should be bought and not sold. So traditionally, Atlassian didn't have a sales team who go out there to sell software. So generally, if you work in enterprise, you, you hire a salesperson, salesperson goes, hits up a bunch of companies and says, hey, you know, how are you doing this task or this process in your company? Is it manual? Are you using software? We've got this software that helps you do it much easier, faster, more efficient than the way you're doing it. Atlassian didn't have that. They thought that if we build a really great product, keep it at a low cost, automate it and make it really easy for people to use and access, we'll then get people using the software and buying it without kind of a salesperson. So that's what product-led growth is. It's using the product as a sales channel and then leveraging how good the product is to then onboard people. So they've got this flywheel that they actually published in their uh, IPO document that's, you know, build great products, which then, you know, you as you build great products, you want to keep the prices low, which means people can enter. And Atlassian famously are really, really cheap. Like similar price software you can get in market, even now, is still substantially more than Atlassian. And then as you keep prices low, 
having low prices means you need a high volume of people to come in. Uh, volume means that you then sell to everyone. So Atlassian sell not just to enterprise, but to small and medium teams, to medium-sized teams, to, to really large teams. And then if you have to sell to everyone, it means you sell your product entirely online, very easy to access. You know, I can go to Atlassian.com and, you know, download and buy the software. Then selling online means you require transparent pricing uh, and an easy trial. And then an easy trial needs means you need to build a great product. And then that flywheel goes. So Atlassian have built this flywheel around building a really great product that will effectively sell itself. Yeah, and I, I think we had this discussion before we started recording, Albert, where you were a bit concerned whether I'd like this company or not because in in some ways you could think of them as having a lack of focus because they're just sort of having this product and they're saying it's available, accessible to everyone. That doesn't sound very focused. But I think where I come, come down on that is I actually think it's a very focused strategy. You can argue whether it's the correct one, but they've clearly put their eggs in this basket and they think it's the best way to go. And so far, it's proven to be successful for them. And even if you see how that breaks down in their customers, I mentioned at the top, 230,000 customers, about 9,000 of those pay more than $50,000. So that's a tiny, tiny percentage of their customer base are paying them more than $50,000. The rest, the hundreds of thousands of others, that's like your uni students, your small, medium-sized businesses who aren't paying particularly much, but there's a high volume of them. Then as you sort of go up the brackets, you've got about 8,000 customers paying them more than $50,000. You've got 400 customers paying them more than half a million dollars. And then you've got only 178 customers out of that 230,000 number paying more than a million dollars every year. So it really shows that there's this sort of pyramid with, and I'm not calling them a pyramid scheme, but there's this pyramid where they've got a base of customers, 230 odd thousand who are just, you know, very, very low payments, but high volume. And then it slowly peaks up to this very small number of customers who are paying them a lot of money. The question, Albert, is, is this like sustainable? Because I think there's two different questions to be asked here. One is whether a product-led strategy can be successful. And I think clearly they've proven the answer to that is yes. But the second question is, will a product-led strategy continue to be successful at their size? And what's your answer to that? Yes. I think the data, the data for Atlassian shows that it has been really successful. So the fastest growing segment of their customers is the customers paying a million dollars or more, followed by then the next segment, which is customers paying $500,000 or more, and then that that tail of customers. And so, um, you know, Atlassian now have come to, to play by the general SaaS playbook of enterprise. So they don't have enterprise sales, but they've got what they call enterprise advocates, who are kind of like salespeople, um, and, and you could call them sales because they do carry sales quotas. Uh, they're the only sales or advocates within Atlassian who carry sales quotas, but, but they effectively talk to um, enterprise customers and understand what their needs are, try to upsell them. But the fact that Atlassian have consistently grown this segment and will probably continue to do so, uh, I think shows that you know, this model is sustainable. I think the other thing Dan's worth noting is when you start as a small business using Atlassian, 
want to embed that in your small business as your business grows then your Atlassian uh, clip and, and what you spend on Atlassian as a business grows with it. So they, they charge per user. If you're a company of 10 people and all 10 people use it, you're going to be in the tail. But, you know, we've seen companies out of 10 people grow into, you know, millions and billion dollar businesses. And as Atlassian penetrate that market, which they do and will continue to do so, um, you know, they're only going to continue growing that, that $1 million, 500K segments of their customer base. Well, that's why I'll, I'll throw the first challenge at you, Albert. And I feel like, you know, I don't have strong feelings on Atlassian. I've looked at them. I can see things I like about them. I see things I don't like about them. And it sort of cancels each other out. So I think I'm going to be playing a little bit more devil's advocate in this episode. But if I look across the marketplace, so if I look globally, what are the most used um, sort of software companies in, in this sector which compete with Atlassian? Microsoft 365, number one. AWS, number two. Google Workspace, number three. Salesforce, number four. Zoom, number five. Obviously not direct competitor, but in that space. Atlassian, number six, with Slack following after. So that's globally. North America, those rankings pretty much hold with Atlassian, again, coming around number six. In EMEA, so Europe, Middle East, Africa, the number four, still behind Microsoft, AWS, Google Workspace. Asia Pacific, again, number four. I mean, AWS, obviously, web services, different. But Google Workspace, Microsoft, clear leaders in the space. What's to stop them from really taking the market share and keeping the market share? I think your, your big challenger here is Microsoft, um, because they're, they're a full-stack cloud business. So uh, a product that we haven't really talked about yet is Bitbucket, which is a product at Lassian acquired a number of years ago. Uh, but Bitbucket is like a developer ops um, piece of software that lets uh, devs upload and deploy code. Microsoft also acquired a very similar business, um, GitLab, uh, which, uh, sorry, GitHub, which, um, you know, developers also use to run, build, test, deploy software. So as Microsoft really push into the cloud, um, I definitely see um, them competing. But I think it just comes down to preference. Uh, the first, you know, Atlassian is a product built for developers and built for engineers, while Microsoft is not. Like Microsoft is not a product that developers want to be using. And because the choice to build and tools to use is really driven by engineering teams, um, you know, for the most part, they are going to choose Atlassian products. As the second is like, you can have two competitors. Atlassian thinks the, the market potential is $126 billion. Right now, they're a $2 billion business. And I don't have Microsoft's revenue at the top of my head from their DevOps, DevOps business. But even if both companies take 10%, you know, that is still a huge business. And so it, it's not a winner-take-all market when you're a $126 billion market. No, but you've you've raised an interesting question there, Albert, because you're talking about how, you know, say you've got a big company, say it's 100 people, then you're going to have an IT department. And what you're talking about is, well, the IT department maybe favors Atlassian's products because it's built with sort of a developer mindset with the needs of a developer in mind, which will be different from, um, say, the experience, the sort of familiarity of other employees and other business segments. But what you're leveraging there is the idea that the IT department has an 
outsized influence in the choice of a particular company's IT systems, which gives Atlassian a bit of an advantage there. And what I'm wondering is, like, is that true? Because if you get to a boardroom, then you know you might have the directors who aren't IT trained, who have been using Microsoft for the last 30 years. Uh, who wins that power struggle? Is it an advantage for either side or is it one that's just going to sort of fall randomly? Because I, I tend to think that Microsoft actually has a bit of an advantage there in how it plays out in each individual company, this choice of products. Yeah, I think this is when you can really look at the data to make that decision. You just said two-thirds of Fortune 500 companies are Atlassian users. And so, you know, it's unlikely that the boardroom is really debating whether, um, you know, software, whatever software everyone uses. Because Atlassian software is not driven top-down, it's driven bottom-up. Someone in the company wants to use it, and then it permeates through the rest of the business rather than a CIO or someone from the board or management team says, we are going to use this software. So because it's driven bottom up, you know, people have no choice but to adopt it. And I guess, I guess secondly, the fact that two-thirds of Fortune 500 are using it show that this is still a piece of software that regardless of who the decision maker is, like these enterprise companies are using Atlassian products. The, the challenge I have with that is... I think that holds true up until a certain sort of procurement price. Like once Atlassian wants to start expanding out its customer profile to more of those customers that are spending more than a million dollars, then you are looking at board approval. You are looking at senior people signing off on the use of of this product because it's a significant cost. And I guess where I'm actually leaning towards as I'm thinking about it is I think Microsoft maybe has an edge there because it does have direct sales channels. You know, it's built up these processes around software sales where now board directors, you know, decision makers in a company, they can really easily reach out to these salespeople. They've been having these conversations for months, if not years. There's maybe a, a sense of trust there. If Atlassian has this bottom-up approach, maybe it's just less equipped to get the higher revenue companies on board. Is that like a bit of a flaw, perhaps, in the strategy? Uh, yes and no. So I think you need to look at it more bottom-up. So if you're a company trying to build out an engineering team or you have engineers, they'll, they'll, they'll use the tools that they want to use. And if you put the tools, say, Microsoft, like if you're a, a board director who's not technical at all and you're dictating to your engineering team how they work, your engineers are going to leave. And that's the reality in, in every engineering business at the moment. There was a great article in the Fin Review this week um, that said engineers were being offered $100,000 to stay when they were presented with offers to leave the business because engineering town is, is so and few and far between, especially in Australia, but, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, especially where engineers are getting like half a million dollars to work at Facebook each year, like half a million US dollars. So, um, you know, I'm not going to say the power is concentrated in these teams, but when you understand that, you're trying to get the best people. They want to use the best tools. And engineers will most often use the tools they want to use, not the tools that have been dictated to them, especially not by someone who's not an engineer or software developer. I think the, the other thing um, I would say is Alassian are really firm because they are so focused. So they, they didn't get a lawyer until they were like an 800-people company and they use standard terms and conditions for every sale. And so they've specifically said, like, if you want us to modify 
our terms and conditions. If you want us to modify the software for you, then like you can, you can go somewhere else. Like we're not the right software for you. And that's like driven by this idea of let's remove all the friction in how someone accesses and buys our product. And as part of that, it's, you know, you don't want to have to reconfigure terms each time you sell to an enterprise. Yeah, and I think that doubles down on, on my point before I said, you know, they really are actually very focused on the strategy, even though it's a broad application strategy. Uh, you know, their website, you can buy a subscription to some of their services for 10 users to up to 50,000 users all through just the online sort of page. So like, it shows how massive companies can purchase the software for a huge amount of users and never have to interact with a single salesperson. Um, Albert, I'm thinking about switching tack here. Do you have anything else on, on products? Yeah, I think while you just talked about their, um, their websites, good call out, well, only about 60% of their revenue actually comes from the website. The, the rest of it comes from indirect partner sales. So, you know, if you're a big enterprise, you know, say you're using Microsoft or you're using another piece of software and you want to use Atlassian, there's going to be big data migration that needs to happen. There's going to need, you're going to need to train everyone to learn how to use the product. You're going to need to do change management around, hey, we've got this new product called Atlassian. You can stop using, I don't know, Asana or Monday or Microsoft Teams or whatever. Um, so Atlassian leverage partners to then do that services work for them. So Atlassian don't do very, like they, don't, they do very little services implementation. They've got partners to do that because they've got this network of partners. Those partners actually go out and sell. And these partners are like IBM and Deloitte, like big consulting firms who generate, you know, a fourth or, or almost a third of Atlassian's revenue. I think this is a really good call out as to their product-led growth. If you have salespeople and implementation partners, what, one of those two things are cannibalizing each other. Either your salespeople are cannibalizing your implementation partners or your implementation partners are cannibalizing your salespeople. What do you mean by that? And so you, salespeople are driven by quotas, which means they need to sell more. And as part of selling more, you then get implementation revenue, software revenue. But because Atlassian have a very low-touch sales process, they're not hiring people, which then lead nowhere because they've got the implementation partners who are out there actually delivering this work. And the, the implementation partners aren't worried about Atlassian cannibalizing their services work by having services people. So that their Atlassian ecosystem is actually really healthy because there's mm. very limited cannibalization. So I, I did want to move tax slightly because we mentioned, I guess, what is a pretty pressing problem for any tech company, which is staff and having skilled staff. As you said, it's a very hot marketplace. And I think when I've assessed various companies, Atlassian, but a whole bunch of the ones that we've looked at in the last couple of months and year, Albert, it very rarely comes up that there is a huge fight for talent and that drives up costs. And you sort of have to pick, well, which tech companies are just going to get the best talent because that will produce better outcomes. And we talked a little about this in last week's episode with, with Palantir, where maybe they're not getting the top, uh, the cream of the crop. Um, Atlassian, I think, is on the other side of that ledger, where I think they've got a very strong case for employees. Um, they've introduced policies where they can basically, if you're an employee, you can work from pretty much anywhere. Uh, you don't have to come into the office. 
about a quarter of their 2,000 Australian staff live beyond commuting distance from the Sydney office, uh, and 30% of their Australian hires during the pandemic are more than two hours away from a city centre. So like offering that kind of flexibility along with great pay, as you're mentioning, Albert, is such a strong case, which I think will, will take them away from some competitors. Plus, they've got this real culture, which we've sort of been talking about, where they've got a very set mission, purpose, and it comes through in their products and it comes through in their teams as well, which you'd hope as you know a company which facilitates collaboration. But all of that goes to say, like I, I think they've got a really sticky network of skilled staff, which will catch more uh, of the talent coming through the system. Yeah, for sure. When people complain about um, not having enough software engineers to hire or they're too expensive, like one of the companies you can blame for that is Atlassian because they just have so much money, they can actually pay like the highest salaries. And, you know, if you're a software engineer, all those benefits are true, Dan, right? Which is like, you can work wherever you want. And I know people who work in Atlassian who work from like random rural towns in New South Wales and Queensland or work in the Blue Mountains and never go into the office. You know, some people go overseas and despite being employed uh, in Australia initially, um, you get paid really well, you know, you get stock and, and stock is basically liquid because it's Atlassian. So it's effectively just more cash. Um, you know, you get to work with really smart people and you're on the cutting edge. You know, Atlassian is, is you know, always thinking about how they improve their business. So it's really, to me, one of the magnets that pulls in great talent. Yeah, and no, what's been, this is again, I mean, maybe I'm coming more around to Atlassian the more we speak about them. But they've, they've keyed into this, like in a lot of the, their CEOs, I'm, I'm surprised we're not talking about them, but Scott Farquhar and Mike Cannon-Brooks, you know, they've articulated very clearly hiring is the key to Atlassian's future and their top priority, full stop. Um, they believe that, you know, the market potential ahead of them starts with them investing in their talent. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think they're switched on to these challenges in a way which, some other companies, when you read through their annual reports, when you see the statements their CEOs and executives are making, they're not making these observations, which either means that they know about and they just don't need to talk about it. But more often than not, I actually just feel like they're just missing a beat slightly, and I don't think these two are. Have you heard the phrase, the 10x developer? No, tell me more. The, the, the 10x developer is like a, a theory or, or a, the, the purple unicorn that every tech company is looking for which is a developer so good, they basically contribute 10x of their value back to the organization. So say you're getting paid 100,000, you're like quantifiable value to the organization's a million dollars. You know, there's obviously other things that come out of a 10x developer, like, you know, they're really personable, great cultural fit, you know, they're willing to learn, that they mentor others, et cetera. Um, But Atlassian is a company that really attracts 10x developers. And when startups and other tech companies are struggling, like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's out there also talking about how, he, how hiring is at the forefront of Meta. But if you're choosing between Meta and Atlassian, you know, my hypothesis is that, you know, for the most part, a lot of people want to go to Atlassian. One last point on this, because what you just said there about a 10x developer, it reminds me of a discussion I had with uh, a CTO of a, of a business here in Australia. And, you know, he was talking about hiring staff and he hires from all around the world. And one of the key points he made was, unlike in other businesses where 
you know, say you hire someone and they're not as good as, as they could possibly be, they're just sort of producing work a little bit slower, not as efficiently, not as good as their peers, you know, the loss to that business is the difference between that individual and the sort of potential replacement that they could have had. So if you hired someone who's a 7 out of 10 and you could have hired a 9 out of 10, the loss to the business is those two sort of points of difference. With software developing companies or software development just generally, when you hire an employee who's not doing a good job, it actually has a detrimental effect on the business because they're coding things, developing things with problems in them which then requires other staff people to fix. So you're not actually just losing the the difference between that person and a better person you could have hired. That one developer could then be taking resources from three or four other developers that you have and really costing your business. So it's overlooked in software businesses how much talent is key and getting the right talent is key because the inverse hiring bad talent can be really unproductive for you as a business. For sure, especially if you you ship something that a customer then uses, which then causes friction or potentially churn in a customer. Like it's a huge flag. Um, I think it'd be worth uh, pivoting, Dan, uh, to quickly talk about financials because I think Alassin's actually in a really good position. Um, Very different to a lot of other tech companies. So at the moment, they're a $2.1 billion business you know, producing a really strong margin, about uh, 84% gross margin, you know, a really high margin compared to some other software businesses, partly because they don't have implementation staff, they don't have to worry about um, sales. So a lot of that is really just hosting costs. And they've got this kind of legacy prem business, which is obviously eating away some of that margin. Um, I think it's worth calling out, Dan, that when they went to IPO, they actually were profitable, which is incredibly rare for a business um, to go... IPO and be profitable, particularly a tech business. Um, and at the moment, once you kind of strip away a few things, they are profitable. So they are a positive operating margin, which means you know all their operating interests or operating activities leads to a positive uh, margin, positive cash flow. Um, and you know, was reading the notes of the financial uh, report as I do. Their negative EBITDA, uh, so they're unprofitable and been unprofitable for the last couple of years really due to exchange derivatives. So obviously, as they operate in a bunch of different markets, um, they collect uh, currency in all these different ways. They're obviously investing this currency. Um, they, they lost about a huge chunk of their operating margin um, due to exchange derivatives. I don't know whether that's by design to you know, reduce tax or, or EPS or whatever, but um, it is interesting that as a business, they are performing really well. Just on paper, it doesn't look like they're performing well until you strip away what's actually leading to that uh, negative EBITDA. The thing I would call out on their finances is uh, something that we've talked about. I always like how when you sort of qualitative look at a company and then you look at their finances, you can see quantitatively where your assessments actually line up. And one is just the low cost of marketing and sales. Like their research and development costs are almost 3x what their marketing and sales is, which again goes to show you know they're putting their money where they think it's best used which is research and development for a product led growth strategy uh, the other thing i would call out is just sort of the split of their revenue not by business sort of category but actually by location 
50% of their revenue is the Americas, about 40% is Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and then 10% Asia Pacific. Very smart choice as an Australian business to uh, start up here and then get out and start you know, accessing other markets. America is clearly the market that they're targeting most efficiently and effectively. Any thoughts on that, Albert, in terms of, you know, is there a thought that maybe they should concentrate a little bit more on the Europe market or do you think America's still got a lot of runway for them? I think America's still got a huge runway. Like when you're trying to, when you're pricing by user, you're, you're generally targeting the biggest companies because that's where you get the biggest clip. And the biggest companies aren't in Australia, unfortunately, they're in Europe and the US. So I think there's still plenty of runway there. So the interesting thing with that, Alba, is you know, as we've talked about, they've got a very broad focus strategy where the product will sell itself. That comes across in their revenue growth. You know, their change, their, their increase in revenue between 2020 and 2021, 20%, 28% increase in Americas, 30% increase in EMEA, 32% increase in Asia Pacific. So across the board, they're all growing at the same rate. Is this perhaps an argument, though, for, geez, if America's doing so well, maybe just put some more resources into that to get it going a little bit further than the rest? Like, any thoughts on that? Or really, if you've got a good thing going, don't get in the way of it. Yeah, I think it always just comes down to trade-offs. Like, if Atlassian is starting to invest more into sales to add a bit of, you know, jet fuel to the fire of growing, you know, almost 30% in the US, like, it means you're not investing as much in R&D. And one of their core tenants is really having a, a product that's easy to use and has a kind of automated onboarding process. And if you um, mess with that flywheel, um, you know, it, it may not churn as quickly. Um, and, you know, once you get a flywheel going, it's obviously hard to stop it going. Um, but you want to keep optimizing it, not, not pulling away from it. Good call out. Albert, anything else you want to say before we start finishing up? Maybe future growth? What do you think's next for Atlassian? Yeah, <laughs> it's funny because if you asked me this a couple of months ago when they were trading at 40x, I would have been like, Atlassian, too expensive. Um, and now they're only trading about 32x and, you know, potentially could still be there. As future growth, they estimate the market to be about well, 126 bill. They're making two bill now. So they're really only scratching the surface of a market. And if you believe that, you know, as a digital transformation continues, every company is going to be software enabled or a software company. Um, then Atlassian is pretty positioned to grow that market share to, you know, five to 10%. I think what I'd like to see is Atlassian really push into teams. You know, obviously at the moment, they're still predominantly in um, DevOps and developer. They've obviously got uh, Trello, um, but really would like to see them move further, further into um, that team space, uh, potentially through an acquisition, Zoom maybe. Um, you know, Atlassian has grown historically through a lot of acquisitions. So we would really like to see Atlassian make a big, bold move in the space. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, I also think that, you know, there's, there seems to be a focus on the, the product at the moment, which I think can sometimes distract from potential opportunities outside that product range. And as you say, Albert, I think clearly what we've talked about in this episode is a sort of differentiation between developer ops tools and then what is the broader marketplace, which is just general team collaboration, which, mar which Microsoft is clearly the market leader. 
And if you were to ask me now, do I think that the current Atlassian suite will compete in the general marketplace against Microsoft's teams? I, I don't think so. Um, but if they use what they've learned now, the skills, the developers, et cetera, they've had, make a timely acquisition uh, and start to play in that space, you know, I think there could be that potential upside. I think we've maybe caught them a little bit early because there just doesn't seem to be anything on the horizon for them to snap at. And, you know, their share price you mentioned, Albert, they were $450 priced November last year, so only a couple of months ago. Now they're down to about 315 You know, I'm saying that not to say the valuation is correct or wrong, etc., but that does affect your ability to make acquisitions when your share price is running really, really high, as we saw with the Afterpay and Block deal. There's, there's a lot more maneuverability and options you can do to make a deal like that happen. For sure. I think, you know, that's almost like a 25% decline. I think given that the huge tech sell-off that's been happening in the past couple months, 25% is actually significantly better than some other companies who have declined by 60-70%. Like, you know, some of the companies we've talked about declined, you know, more than uh, Atlassian. Peloton was down like 60%, Beyond Meat down 60%. Um, so for Atlassian to only drop by 25% during the big sell-off, like to me, I think that's a r- really, really good result. Albert, you're making it sound like we've got the touch of death. We'll have to monitor Atlassian after this episode. No, not at all. I, I, they're, doing, they're, doing, they're doing really well. They're I mean, doing... maybe we're just teaching people a little bit too much about the companies we talk about. <laughs> they're all just pulling out. Yeah. <laughs> Fresh capital moves markets. <laughs> all right, Albert, what's your verdict? Uh, I think Atlassian's a great business. Um, you know, they've got, they're doing all the right things. Um, if they can expand into another product, uh, either through an acquisition or through organic growth, um, then I think that's going to be another avenue for future growth. Um, you know, as a whole, though, uh, when you're talking about competing against Teams, like Microsoft Teams, like Microsoft Teams is a piece of shit software. Like, I don't know anyone who's ever had a positive experience in Microsoft Teams. It's hard to use. It's not great. And Atlassian, also a good product, but, you know, it's still clunky and at times very difficult to use. Partly, if you're trying to use Jira to do non-technical things, it's um, not built for that. Um, but I would really like to see whether it is Atlassian or another company come in with a nice, easy-to-use piece of team collaboration software, which um, I don't think exists yet. Oh, yet I've, I've yet to see it. So... When we were talking offline, Albert, we were talking about, you know, the people are bearish about something if they're, they're not keen on a company or an investment. They're bullish if they're, you know, really keen and they would like to invest in it. Uh, I think I'm in between and, and I'm in a watch and wait and see. You know, maybe that's, uh, I don't know, whaleish or something like that. Um, but for me, I, I really want to see what the product is that will transform Atlassian into a business that can really compete in that team's collaboration space because I don't, I don't necessarily see it yet. I think they're a really positive business. I think they've obviously achieved and executed fantastically well for what they are. In some ways, I think like they're almost maximizing their potential, which is a backhanded compliment because you're saying you're doing really, really well, but I don't think that you know, your potential is that high. Like You're just maximizing what you're given. There's other companies out there where, I mean, I know you had a 
a dig at Microsoft Teams, but you know they're a company with a huge potential. Like they've literally got a software that every single business in the world could use. And if I use that as as a bit of a criteria, I, I don't think Atlassian's software, their tools, are things that every company or business will use. And that's a high ambition. Like you really shouldn't uh, be rating companies against whether everyone in the world can use their products. But I think in the way that some people evaluate tech companies, that there's a little part of that in the assessment because we're trying to extrapolate out and assess how high can you grow, how many users can you have. And that's where I'm in wait and see mode with Atlassian because I, I can't clearly see their pathway to this year on year never ending growth. And the problem that you might have if you don't have that growth is exactly what Facebook is showing at the moment, and I think I'll do a simple sprout on them for, for this week's upcoming simple sprout, is you know Facebook has now fallen off a cliff because of the first time in ages their user growth has gone backwards. Um, and it's the same thing can happen to a lot of these tech companies is they're just growing, growing, growing because everyone always expects them to grow. But at some point, if they're not innovating, they're not creating a new product or doing something different, the growth will stop. And that's not necessarily what I foresee with Atlassian. It's just that I can't see where the growth is coming for next. I think this is a really good call out that we should leave on because you're absolutely right that investors really expect Atlassian to grow. So right now, Atlassian's price at 32x revenue. 32x revenue is 64 billion. And they think their market size is 126 bill. So that means right now, investors believe Atlassian could grow to take 50% of the market share of a $126 billion market, <laughs> which when you when you put it that way, yeah, yeah, absolutely, it's overvalued. Like it, the investor expectations are always going to be unmet when you price something at 32x revenue for something that's already a $2 billion business. We should maybe get a little bit more into valuations, Albert. That was a very concise, I think a really good way to, to sort of contextualize it. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I'm not like a deep quant but like i follow expectations investing which is like what assumptions have people priced into this and then do i believe those assumptions and if you just look at that just just a ratio of enterprise value to revenue then you can see that investors believe it can get to 64 bill which <laughs> is a lot of money <laughs> it's all right albert let's finish up there Thanks for listening to Fresh Capital, a company about companies and investing told in a refreshingly simple way. Like, subscribe, follow, all of that. You know, please give us a rating on Spotify or Apple's uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and we'll catch you next week.